Politico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Frank Marshallek. Later on in the program, environmental correspondent Zero Rose explores urban permaculture and village building with Mark Lakeman, the eco-architect and placemaker behind Portland, Oregon's City Repair Project, which has inspired communities around the world to transform their neighborhoods into art installations and food forests. And now for your environmental reports. Inside Climate Change reports on the status of a plastics recycling plant in Ashley, Indiana. EcoReport has covered progress at the huge facility earlier and emphasized the dangers posed by this facility. Companies outside Indiana place their dirty plants here because our politicians tolerate pollution. Inside Indiana's quote-unquote advanced plastics recycling plant, there are dangerous vapors, oil spills, and life-threatening fires. The Brightmark, quote-unquote, plastics renewal plant can't get past the startup phase as former employees raise environmental, health, and safety concerns. The plant's owner is San Francisco-based Brightmark. The plan here is to store, shred, and chop plastic waste and extrude it into pellets. These pellets are then fed into pressurized pyrolysis chambers, the plant has six of them, that use extreme heat to produce a synthetic gas and a dirty pyrolysis oil in what the chemical industry markets as a type of quote-unquote advanced recycling. The plant's industry champions the process as something that makes plastic sustainable, even green, by turning old plastic containers, packaging, and the like into new plastic products without the need to extract more fossil fuels to create new plastic feedstocks. But many scientists and environmentalists say pyrolysis is anything but sustainable, describing it as energy-intensive manufacturing with a large carbon footprint that incinerates much of the plastic waste and mostly just makes new fossil fuels. A fire in May of 2021 is just one of several environmental health or safety challenges the company has faced since it began testing its plant in 2020 while struggling to fulfill its promise of operating, quote-unquote, the world's largest plastics renewal facility on a commercial scale. The plant has kept the Ashley Fire Department of about 20 members busy Responding to at least six or seven fires since 2020, at least one producing a plume of smoke that could be seen 35 miles away in Fort Wayne. They remind us of the plastics fire in Richmond recently. EcoReport has raised another potential issue. What's in the emissions? 
This type of process often generates dioxins, which are carcinogenic. These compounds can be eliminated by adding additional combustion of the emission gases. EcoReport has not been able to learn the details of emissions. Inside Indiana Business reports that by the time it's expected to come online in 2026, a West Terre Haute-based fertilizer plant will have the capacity to capture and store as much as 1.65 million tons of carbon dioxide annually, making it one of the largest carbon sequestration projects in the country. Wabash Valley Resources, which was formed in 2016 to acquire a shuttered Duke Energy coal plant in Vigo County, is moving forward with the project after state lawmakers passed legislation requiring the company to compensate landowners for the porous underground rock formations underneath their property that will hold carbon dioxide. The plant currently produces hydrogen-rich syngas, but the company plans to retrofit the facility to also produce an hydrous ammonia fertilizer and separate CO2 for se sequestration. Quote, this is a billion-dollar asset that we're repurposing to make fertilizer and maybe down the road hydrogen, end quote, said Senator John Ford, a Republican from Terre Haute who supports the development. I think there's a lot of possibilities with a project like this. The $900 million endeavor, which has received funding from Arizona-based battery manufacturer Nicola Corporation, as well as the U.S. Department of Energy's carbon storage program, will address a high demand for a reliable supply of agricultural ammonia used for crops such as corn and wheat without harming air quality, company officials say. Quote, both the Department of Energy and the Environmental Protection Agency are very excited about us doing this at scale because it's the path forward to avoid the kind of air pollution that comes from the burning of carbon, end quote, said Greg Zaylor, Vice President of External Affairs for Wabash Valley Resources. While carbon capture technology has the support of the Biden administration and the EPA officials, some environmental advocates and consumer protection groups caution that the process does not come without risk, pointing to an incident in Mississippi in February of 2020 when a CO2 pipeline burst resulting in 45 people being hospitalized. Quote, it's completely unproven technology that we are pushing forward based on extreme and extraordinary lobbying done by the fossil fuel industry, end quote, said Kerwin Olson, executive director of the Indianapolis-based Citizens Action Coalition. That is the correct assessment. It's rare these days to see frogs or toads on our properties. Melinda Myers Horticulturist and garden expert offers tips to make your outdoor space more attractive to them. Toads and frogs make great gardening partners. They eat lots of insects, including mosquitoes, slugs, and snails, and ask for very little in return. Help extract these natural predators, attract these natural predators to your garden with just a few changes in your gardening habits. Their thin, permeable skin allows toxins and pollutions, pollutants to pass through and enter their bodies. These chemicals can disrupt development, reproduction, or even kill these creatures. This is why they are considered an indicator of environmental health. So skip the pesticides to help them keep safe and enlist other strategies when needed to manage weeds, diseases, and insect pests in the garden. If you already have frogs, 
or toads in your yards, you may want to need you may only need to make a few minor changes to attract even more. Relax your garden cleanup routine. A tidy garden is not where toads and frogs prefer to live. Leave some leaf litter under trees and shrubs in the garden. This, is, this natural mulch provides a cool, damp environment perfect for them. It also helps to conserve moisture, suppress weeds, and improves the soil as the leaves decompose. All of this is good for the health of your plants and means less maintenance for you. Create dense plantings of native perennials and grasses that provide shady hideouts and great hunting grounds for these amphibians. They will find insects, worms, slugs, snails, and more to dine on uh, upon these lush locations. Include some night-blooming fragrant plants to help attract night-flying moths. You'll provide food for the toads and frogs, night hunts, and fragrances, fragrances for you to enjoy. Paul A. Smith, Wildlife Research Division, Environment and Climate Change of Canada, and a large number of co-authors published a paper, Ornithological Applications, this year about the disappearing shorebirds in North America. Shorebirds are declining to a greater extent than many other avian taxa around the world. In North America, shorebirds, along with aerial insectivores, such as swifts, swallows, and martens, and grassland birds have some of the highest proportions of declining species of any group. Surveys of North American shorebirds during fall migration carried out largely by volunteers are used to monitor trends in the abundance of their populations. Between 1980 and 2019, 26 of the 28 shorebird species analyzed were found to be declining with more than half of the species losing more than half of their abundance. Declines were greatest along the Atlantic coast from Nova Scotia to North Carolina and less severe along the Gulf Coast and in the mid-continent. Declines are worsening in recent years. These large and accelerating declines mean that many species now exceed international criteria for threatened species listing. Urgent conservation action is needed to slow and eventually reverse declines. Targeted research, and in particular studies of survival throughout the year, could help to pinpoint where shorebirds are most strongly impacted so that conservation attention can be focused where it is most needed. One thing is clear about Indiana. The legislature has little regard for shorebirds. The legislature has removed very large acreage from wetland protection. They cater to builders who want to build on cheap land. The Department of Agriculture gives tens of millions of dollars every year to farmers and ranchers to support conservation efforts on their farms. But much of the funding ends up at big industrial scale operations that critics say worsen agricultural pollution and emit climate warming greenhouse gases, a new report has found. The report, released last week by the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, concluded that one of the agency's biggest and most popular conservation programs, the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, gave out its costliest grants in 2022 to seven large dairy farms in California, the country's biggest dairy producing state. These grants, nearly $300,000 each, were for construction of anaerobic digesters which capture methane gas from lagoons where manure is collected. The methane is then converted into biogas 
that gets routed into pipelines to heat homes and buildings. And now, Zero Rose speaks with Mark Lakeman, lead architect of Texture, on how grassroots activism is making neighborhoods safer, more fun, and ecologically sustainable. We're joined today by Mark Lakeman, uh, founding uh, designer and director of uh, Communitecture, a community architecture and planning firm. Uh, he's been involved with many projects around the country, involved with uh, placemaking and urban permaculture. And uh, what he's maybe best known for, at least what I uh, discovered him through was the city repair project in Portland, Oregon, where they were taking over intersections and turning them into community central nodes and uh, blocking traffic and putting up benches and solar tea stands and this type of thing. So uh, we're going to talk to him about the uh, kind of village building work that he's been doing and the various things he's uh, got himself involved in. Uh, thank you for being with us today, Mark. Thanks, Zero. Total pleasure to talk with you about this and anything else. And so uh, I guess you're on a tour at the moment, uh, hipping people up in California to different ways to design their neighborhoods to make them more ecologically and socially uh, sustainable. Yeah, there's a lot of different um, things I'm trying to accomplish on this speaking tour. I'm doing everything from talking to mayors and planning directors. Hopefully I've got a gig with the mayor of Los Angeles, but I do have a gig with um, the mayor of Santa Monica and the planning director. And then um, all kinds of different grassroots scenarios, schools, universities. I'm even working with some kids doing chalk drawings tomorrow morning, some little kids. So um, a lot about homelessness and houseless villages doing a lot of work on for the last 20 years. So we got a fing our, our fingers in a lot of different pies and people want to know how we've managed to achieve all these different prototypes. It's good to hear that it's uh, not just a thing for the landed gentry and people that own their homes, but that you're getting into uh, homeless villages. Yeah, we prototyped the first version of DIY houseless villages in the country back in beginning in 1999 and it took maybe a year and a half for the city council to finally approve what we were proposing. And we were working very closely with a lot of allied organizations and a core group of homeless activists. I use homeless and houseless a lot sort of interchangeably because back then the term was homeless, but um, we were trying to get the city to realize that if you allow people to be stable in a place, they can take care of themselves not necessarily rely on a whole bunch of tax-based budget and um, actually outperform what uh, taxpayers cover in terms of these kinds of emergency shelters that after all start off by breaking families apart into different genders and different, different ages. And they really break down families that are already struggling. So we proposed a model that kept people together and let them keep their pets, let them be stable and keep their belongings. 
basically build their own infrastructure, having an address where they can send and receive mail, hopefully getting a job or somehow getting safe. But that's that's not happening anytime soon for a whole lot of people. So aggregating tents together and being able to build with whatever they can get out of the waste stream to make a place of mutual benefit can actually end up looking like a village. And the first one we created in Portland has been verified by the police as being absolutely the safest place in the city in terms of crime rate, crime rates and different indicators of strife, calls for police, calls for neighborhood mediation, that sort of thing. So there's a lot to say about why that's true, but we kind of knew that would be true at the start because of where we're coming from and understanding the nature of these problems. And then as I've studied villages and pre-colonial villages and the way that a lot of gathering spaces replicate the idea of being inside of your mother, like a circular meeting space, especially my own Celtic ancestors, it's referring to a great mother, the space within a great mother, actually creating some kind of mythological structure that helps you in combination with a spatial experience in a circle a feeling whole. I would like to say that, you know, the you introduced the work I'm doing. When I got back from visiting the Lock and Done, the first first project was an intervention. I I was steeped in architectural kind of modernist um, dogma and philosophy. And after traveling and visiting indigenous societies, I, I realized how much of that was, and it was exactly the opposite of what we needed to do in order to actually bring people together, especially to reunite human consciousness with, or really a human affinity with nature. And so I started intentionally designing spaces that refuted the words of the so-called great modernists like Mies van der Rohe, Louis Kahn, Le Corbusier, and um, to some extent, Frank Lloyd Wright, but mostly just his egotism and his individuation, the individuation in his, in his way of thinking. That's a tough one to talk about. We could go on for hours about, about that particular character because he was also amazing. But I just started, like, I remember that in school I was taught that these so-called great modernists were emphatic that nature and humanity were separate. So human architecture had to express, like physically crystallize the distinction of, of humans from nature. And I had just visited so many spaces that brought people together that were so simple, so elegant, transparent, and not coercive. And so I started to just create that kind of space in my own neighborhood. And the phenomena went through the roof, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people until there were so many people, they couldn't even get on this one property. And then they were on all properties around this one intersection. And then there were so many people that we took over the intersection and people were dancing in the streets. And this it's this whole long story, but it led to the, the first sort of seizure of a street intersection. And when we did it, we painted the street and we built all these structures on the corners and the police were called by some neighbor who like didn't understand what we were doing. And the police said, this is the most amazing thing. This giant guy named Ed, who's very, almost seven feet tall, bald, scary looking. And he's like, you know what? I'm paid to stop stuff, which is bad, but not stuff, stuff which is good. And so when transportation, like he's like, I'm not even gonna report this. 
because he's like seeing all these people that live right there. Like we painted the street and it's our neighborhood. We built the little free libraries, you know, before li little free libraries even existed. That's what we were doing. We were building solar powered tea stations and kids clubhouses wrapped around a living tree and all these gardens. We were tearing up lawns. Um, for me, it was just being like a lock and don Maya, like I had seen them be just be unregulated, be, 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 take off the collar, take off the, the leash and just start to create directly with people, feel free and to liberate our creativity. And the police loved it. Transportation got mad. And then the mayor saw what we did. And she's like, <laughs> I remember this moment. Transportation was like, you got to get this stuff off the street or we're going to charge everybody on the corners and we're going to hurt you. You know, we're going to charge you financially. You're going to feel pain. So we went to talk to the mayor, just hoping that she would be able to relate to our work. And she saw this photo. We were standing in the foyer. She walks into the foyer of her office. She looks at this photo I'm holding in my hand and she's like, this is in Portland? Like she, I know, I knew of her from my parents' own political activism when I was a little kid. So I knew she had been cool at some point. And when she saw what we had done, like we had a photo of what we had done in the street. And she's like, she turns to the ombudsman, you know, who's like the Superman of, of the city. Like the ombudsman can do anything. And she says, Michael, shut down transportation. Give these people a chance to talk to the city council. Something remarkable has happened. <laughs> and within two hours, we're sitting with the city lawyer. And she and the mayor, Vera Katz, points to the picture and she's like, what was her name? Laura, the, the, city, the city lawyer was like, what was her name? Anyway, she said, make this legal. <laughs> I have never seen executive power act so decisively and quickly as I saw that day. We went from standing there feeling hopeless with one last shred of a chance to the most powerful person really in the history of Oregon standing there saying, make this legal. And within a couple of months, everything was worked out. The city council unanimously legalized the free transformation of every intersection in any neighborhood that anyone had wanted to turn into a public square. I want to shift back for a second to your, um, you, re you referred to food forests. Mm -hmm. My little daughter, who's six years old now, she's grown up in a permaculture paradise that we live in in Portland, Oregon. We've been cultivating it since 1996. So it's just a 50 by 100 lot, but we've revillaged the whole block with pathways, shared gardens, painted intersections, orchards, all these wonderful things going on. And on our 50 by 100 lot, it's particularly intense with um, all these retrofit buildings with straw clay, cob and earth and plaster, earth and paints. But everywhere you go, there's food. Everywhere you walk, like, you know, 14 different varieties of fruit trees bursting throughout spring and summer with blossoms and food. And then, you know, fruit forests. So like literally from the ground plane all the way to the tops of the trees, you've got vines and perennial vegetables and edible ground cover. And it's just all these phasing, all this phasing of you know, blooming flowers and food all around you. It's just blessed. It's blessed to be in, you know, 
it just makes me think all the time. I just, I walk through there, like watching my daughter harvesting everything. And she's so articulate about plant relationships and understanding how things thrive in the sun or shade and how, how plants like different environments and how they get along differently with different plants. And she's six years old and she's just so, so versed in all of this stuff. Plant medicine, she's constantly experimenting, cooking. It's just fascinating. So she's thriving. She's in a human habitat of a, of a like, you know, real, really resurging ecosystem designed by people and gardened by people, tended by people. And so she's growing up to be a gardener of the world. So what I'm saying is, you know, like one entry point for talking about this is food, food security. And you'd hope that that would motivate some people. But it's so easy to be living in Pox Americana thinking that everything's just fine. And if you have, have enough money, you'll always be able to eat. But there's so many more entry points for talking about this, like to grow children who are like, like alive and vital, informed and empowered, and like feel physically capable and have all this agency. Like that's one way to talk about it. So it's, it's how to grow the best, most healthy kids. And then like, Beauty, health, there's just so many different entry points for talking about why this is all good stuff. A sense of place. This is In Nature. That, my friends, is the yellow-crowned night heron. It's a rare bird in Indiana. They have a white crown and back with the remainder of the body grayish, red eyes and short yellow legs. They have a white stripe below the eye. It's a very handsome bird. It's a medium-sized heron, averaging 24 inches in length. The yellow-crowned night heron is mostly found in southern swamps and coastal areas, but a few can be found breeding northward to Indiana and Illinois. The great majority of the yellow-crowned night heron's diet consists of crustaceans, and it is a nocturnal hunter. Both sexes help build the nest, which can be as high as 60 feet or so, away from the trunk on a horizontal limb, often hanging over water. Initially, the female stands on the nest while a male carries sticks to her as part of the pair bonding process. Later, the female also gathers sticks. The nest takes about 11 days to build initially. Night herons use them for several years, adding to them each year. Nests can be as large as four feet across, with just a shallow depression inside for the two to six eggs. The yellow-crowned night heron. This is Norm Holy for WFHB. You've been listening to In Nature, a production of WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. For Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Frank Marshalek. 
Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. The Sassafras Audubon Society is sponsored sponsoring a bird hike at Pate Hollow on Tuesday, June 27th from 8 to 11 a.m. You will be hiking the three-mile Pate Hollow Trail with David Rupp of Indigo Birding Nature Tours. Register at David space R-U-P-P at hotmail.com or call 812-679-8978. Join Daniel Layton with Sycamore Land Trust on Friday, June 30th from 4 to 6 p.m. for a wetland flora exploration walk at the Bean Blossom Bottoms Nature Preserve. You will be introduced to basic botany and wetland floral identification. Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area is hosting a Bats and Brownies program in the Visitor Center on Friday, June 30th from 8 to 10 p.m. Learn all about bats while you eat yummy brownies. You'll be outside for part of the evening to look for bats. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy. Today's news feature was produced by Zero Rose and edited by Noel Herhusky Schneider. Juliana Daly assembled the script, which was edited by Zero Rose. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Cade Young and Noel Herhusky Schneider produced today's show. Brandon Blewett was our engineer. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Frank Marshalek. And this is Eco Report. <laughs>